Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. As much of the world is tearing itself apart with division and polarization, is there anything we can do to try and build an alternative political culture? During the Great Depression, a wily, iconoclastic man called Saul Alinsky said, yes, as he began building bridges between religious organisations and unions in the back of the yards community in southwest Chicago. That organisation sought to build connections between communities and workers to achieve greater justice for them both. Today, the organisation he founded, the Industrial Areas Foundation, is in 84 cities around the world, and in each of those places, dotted across the United States, Canada, the United Kingdom, Europe, Hong Kong, Australia and New Zealand, the movement is building a political culture based on relationships and action for the common good. Today's Changemaker Chat is with one of the most experienced organisers in that movement. We are speaking with Arnie Graf. Arnie was trained by Alinsky, who was hilariously formative in Arnie's development, and he talks about that in the interview. Arnie shares some of the stories of his organising across places like Baltimore, San Antonio and South Africa. He also shares the triumphs and tribulations of how he sought to translate organising into a political party context with the Labour Party in the United Kingdom. And full disclosure, relationship-based community organising is my primary way of being in the world. My training with the Industrial Areas Foundation in 2006 saw me return to Australia and build the Sydney Alliance. I love this stuff. After 10 years as a lead organiser, I also think about how it can change and evolve. But I want to be upfront about where I'm coming from. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that are feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. Changemakers also runs an organising school where you can sharpen your skills to make change in the world. All the details are on our website where you can also sign up to our email list. It's changemakerspodcast.org. So, Arnie, welcome to Changemaker Chats. Thank you. It's delightful to have you with us across many seas and amidst such difficult times. We are really excited to have you on because I know your work well and it is about embodying a distinctive approach to making change. And I was hoping that you could start the conversation by telling our listeners about the distinctive take and approach that you have applied 
to making change in the world? Well, I like the word patient. There's a book about the civil rights movement in our country, and the chapter is, is about a man named Robert Moses, and the name of the chapter is Organizing-Slow Respectful Work. My life has been in, in, in building organizations where there were no broad-based organizations of our type, and it usually took between two and three years before we actually founded the organization and went public. And in the period of time from just beginning to the founding meeting, there were, I and others, uh, leaders that I would meet, did literally well over a thousand individual relational meetings. And those meetings, that means they are two people face-to-face, exploring their interests and their story. And from there, you know, we're able, we bring people together in small groups. And that's where people start trying to hone down to what they would, what issues are important to them. And I usually have done anywhere from 125 to 225 of these, depending upon the size of the city that I'm working in. And it's from there that you you are able to spot leaders. You are able to hear the problems that people are talking about. And you are able to put together research committees that can take those problems and break them down into issues. And the word issue means to go forth. So to things that you can actually do. So if someone says education is a problem, you know, uh, is a concern, I would say to them, well, that's a problem. What aspect of it do you, is bothering you the most? Well, I don't like the fact that my child doesn't get enough time, you know, to play or in recess or whatever they're, whatever they're, you know, concerned about. And from all those meetings, you know, we gather them, people whittle them down to you know, what we would start with. And that's how we begin. And by then you've been able to spot leaders. You've done research. People have done research on the issue that they're concerned about. And you're able to go forth. So this practice, you know, this patient organizing practice that you have been doing for quite a few decades now, tell our listeners a little bit about where you've done this in the different places that this kind of work, you know, you've experienced. Well, I've done this in various uh, cities and states across the United States from east to west and north to south. I did training on how to do this in South Africa before uh, when the clerk was still the, you know, leader of an apartheid state. And we were in working with uh, 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 a group of, black South Africans and figuring out what they would work on once they got their freedom. I did this in the Labour Party off and on for two years in uh, in the UK. And I've done it with unions in uh, Canada and in the United States. So it, it fits how you apply it may be different, but it's it, it the process is the same. Possibly because it's speaking to some universals about the human condition, maybe. Yes, exactly. And in fact, I call it a universal. Yeah. I think there are a number of universals 
that we in the Industrial Areas Foundation, you know, have, you know, brought forth. That means that they generally work in most places, except, you know, you have to apply it to the culture. Of course. One of the things that makes, you know, the show's called Changemakers, right? And sometimes that phrase bristles people. Sometimes sometimes people love it. I'm not asking for, for judgment on the name. But what is interesting to me about the Industrial Areas Foundation, what is different about it is who it thinks the changemakers need to be. And it lifts up the importance of leaders as central to making change. Talk to me a little bit about that as the cent- as a centerpiece for the argument for organizing. Well, the leadership in these organ in, in our organizations, the leadership is a collective, number one. It's not one person. It may be a collective of 15 to 20. And hopefully those 15 to 20 people uh, represent the diversity of the organization that you are, you know, organizing. The organizer's role is to is to organize, and the leader's role is to lead. That is uh, to say, it's not for the organizer to be talking to the media or the or the press. It's not for them to go on the television show. It's really not even for the organizer to speak at a big meeting. Almost never. I don't think I ever spoke at a large meeting. Your role is to develop as many, like a collective leadership that is able to strategize and work on the issues that have come out of those all of those meetings that I was describing earlier, yeah. and to teach. You're really a teacher, an agitator in the sense of uh, getting people to act on their concerns, and you're a you know you're a teacher and a talent search. That's really the role of the organizer to be, you know, teach, talent search, you know, uh, that's, that's develop leaders. That, that's by, by teaching, I mean, development of leaders. And that's the role of the organizer, as opposed to many organizations, which really the people who are putting the organization together are the leaders. So it's a, it's a, it's a different model. Yeah. In that sense. So so let's understand why you've chosen to dedicate your life to working with this different model. I'd love for you to, you know, take us back as far as you would like to and tell us some stories about why you became an organiser. Wow. Well, um, it was, uh, you know, really quite uh, serendipitous for me. I... Um, came out of a working middle-income family. I went to a uh, university that was a state school. And in the first year, very large, you know, maybe 40,000 students. And in the, in my freshman year, my first year, I lived in a, in a dormitory and on the floor was uh, an African-American fellow. There were very, at that time, there were very few African-American students. Out of 40,000, I, 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 honestly, I think it's probably about 2%. And uh, I'll try to do this quickly. We, we, we had, a, we had a, a recreational basketball team where we played in a league. And uh, we won the league. We went out to have a beer to celebrate. And the waitress, the waitresses were not serving us. They kept walking by us. 
So I got up and said, I'll go to the bar and I'll bring back the beer. And uh, the bartender kept walking by me as if I didn't exist. So I got up on the bar, leaning over, you know, uh, and to block him to get his attention. And I held out my arm and he stopped and he said, what do you want? And I said, four pitchers of beer. And he said, I'll serve you when you get rid of, then he used uh, the N word for African-American person. And I was stunned. I didn't, I didn't think he, I couldn't believe he would say that. I was naive. You know, I was 17. I hadn't been around very much. Uh, so I thought that he said, I said to myself, he, he couldn't have said that. I knew enough to know that that was wrong. I, I said to myself, he must be saying Negro because that was the terminology in the country that was used then. And so I got back up on the bar again and he got very angry and he said, what do you want? And I said, did I got angry as four pitches of beer? And then he used the N word again. He started cussing and I started cussing at him and I try to take a swing at him. And uh, these bouncers came and basically got a hold of me to large guys. I'm small and threw me out. And uh, after that incident, no one would on the floor where I lived, including the African-American guy would talk to me, not even the African-American fellow. And so I, um, I just thought, well, I don't understand this stuff. I'll just get some friends and, you know, just stay, stay on my own. And at the end of the semester, I went down to the cafeteria to have breakfast before an exam and this African-American fellow was there. And so I went over because I knew I wouldn't see him again. It's a huge university. Once we graduated, you know, how would you see, you know, you're all scattered, different classes and so on. And so I wanted to, I had one more chance to see what, what, why didn't he never talk to me after that? And, uh, he told me, that, did I really want to know? And I said, yeah, of course I want to know. And he said, well, okay, I'll tell you. I thought you were crazy. And, and, and I can't afford, you know, if the police came in, I'd be the one that was arrested. He, you know, he said to me, imagine if I had done that. I'm the one that's being insulted. He said it loud enough for me to hear, you know, him calling me, a, you know, an N-word. But if I had done it, you did it. Nothing happened to you. I mean, you got a little roughed up by the bouncers, but you know, nothing happened to you. If I did it, they would have called the police and I would have been arrested for disorderly conduct. And then I would have been thrown out of school. And then I would have broken my parents' hearts because they worked two jobs each to save up money to send me to school. So I wouldn't be have to do what they were doing. They did, you know, uh, laboring work. And, uh, I, you know, then he started explaining to me what life was like for him on the campus. And I was just stunned by it all. And it just stayed with me. And, and, you know, two years later, a couple of people, I was in the, I was at a dance that was, it was uh, being, um, sponsored by a civil rights group. And I, I uh, congregate, uh, core, Congress of Racial Equality. I'd never heard of them. I didn't know anything about it. And they had said that they had been in the south of the country, in Mississippi, 
as a state in the South, and and uh, they had been sent to Buffalo, which is in the North, to organize a chapter because of racism, even though it's in the North. And people, you know, the kids in the started, we want, you know, we want the music, we want the band back, you know, this isn't Mississippi, you know. <laughs> but I knew differently from the experience I had had with this African-American fellow, his name was Vernon. I can remember it to this day. And so I wandered into the, uh, into the meeting. And from there, I just got absorbed and got involved in the civil rights movement. Lots of uh, demonstrations, got arrested, badly treated by the police. People were threatening my life. Uh, it was just... Uh, my, my world turned upside down, but that's why I got involved because I I, I learned firsthand what Vernon's life was like you know, on on the college campus, and it was nothing like mine. Yeah, the powerful thing is, though, as important as obviously as civil rights work was at that time, you didn't stay in that movement style of political activity. Talk to us about how you then shifted into community organizing? Well, five or six years later, I, I mean, I spent, from there, I was two years in Sierra Leone, West Africa, teaching in a small school and just teaching, not organizing. And then I came back to New York where I'm from and I was again teaching, but I was very disturbed by what was going on and the lack of money and attention being paid. It was a school of mainly Puerto Rican kids and they were treated, you know, very poorly. And so I, I was looking to get back in organizing, and I went to university to get a master's degree in what was called uh, social work with, with community slash community organizing. But I didn't learn really about organizing. I mean, I took courses, but it wasn't it was theoretical, you know. Within the two years, I, I spent four years in a very poor rural white area, and uh, I was again in a movement. It was called the Welfare Rights Movement. People on, you know, on welfare, getting they, they had no jobs or their jobs paid so little that they had some supplement from the government. But they were mistreated, even though they were white. And so now I realize that this wasn't just a black problem. This was a this was a power question. <laughs> you know, if you didn't have money you didn't have much say so and what ha and you had to take on whatever the government was giving or not giving you and you had to deal with you know uh being treated you know as a lower class person and so i was i was looking uh, before i graduated i was looking for you know some place to go where i could organize and uh I was fortunate. I had a, a professor that knew Saul Alinsky, who was the founder of uh, the Industrial Areas Foundation, and that's where she sent me. And I met with uh, Ed Chambers, who was then the director, and told he asked me what was my experience. You know, uh, it was an interview to get into the training session. And I told him all the things I had done. It may have been him, or I guess it was Alinsky that I was explaining this to. Sorry, it was Alinsky. And he said, you know, young man, you, you, you sound like a pile of undigested actions. <laughs> and I thought, wow, you know. 
And through the training then, I, I realized that movements, I'd been in two movements, relied very heavily on the leader. And in Kentucky, the leader just sort of wore out. And then the organization seemed like it was lost. And in the civil rights movement, when the leaders were, you know, were gone, either they were killed or they, you know, uh, just stopped being leaders. They couldn't take the pressure anymore. The whole organization was gone. So I thought there has to be a, has to be a, a better way of doing this. And there need to be more leaders just because one person is gone. You know, as tragic as that is, it doesn't mean that the whole effort should be gone. It's not about a person. And so that's how I moved into community organizing, which is a collective leadership, not an individual. And it's not a movement. It's not around one, one thing. It's, it's around a set of things which try to bring in the interest of, of uh, you know, a variety of people and not just one problem. Yeah. like civil rights or payments that go to poor people. So Saul Alinsky agitated you and, and helped you affirm some of the things that you were already thinking about, the role of, of, of leaders and the need to deal with the power problem mm-hmm. you were confronting. But you have made this piece of work your life's work. You know, you've been involved in community organising in different places since then. Why did you stay? Why is this the, the place that you wanted to be for your for your career? Well, right, I stayed. I did it for 45 years. I just, uh, there were a couple of things. On the personal side, I just kept growing. I felt like I was learning and growing all the time. I was in different cities. I was in me- metropolitan areas. You know, I was in England. I was in South Africa. I, I just felt like uh, I was in Canada, I, you know, unions, community organizations. I just felt like I, where else would I grow like this? Where else would I be exposed in real time with people struggling, you know, to get make a better, you know, world, better community anyway. And I, you know, I had a, this was, I never cared for school because uh, it, it felt remote to me especially in graduate school, teaching about community organizing instead of doing it felt remote to me. This was on the ground, you know, and I was meeting in organizing. I was meeting all kinds of people, you know, from very poor people to, you know, upper middle class people from, you know, Latino, Latinx and and Hispanic people to African-American people to Asian-American people to white people to people who were religious, to people who weren't religious. And I just felt like uh, it was the most fascinating kind of life. And I met so many interesting people, you know, along the way that challenged me to grow and challenged me in my thinking. And the other thing was I had, you know, I have a fair amount of anger and about, you know, what I see around me. And I, you know, I, I had to figure out a constructive place to put it, not just yelling at a bartender and getting into a fight with two bouncers. I mean, that when you're small like me, it's not a good idea. <laughs> uh, and um, I had to find some constructive place to put that, make it work for me, not just temper, but really make the anger, you know, like you, 
cold anger, like when you put a, how you make steel. I wanted to be like that and, and get some discipline. So between accomplishing things, which is winning sometimes, which was always great, meeting a, a vast array of people, uh, all from different walks of life, and trying to knit, knit them together, and having a constructive place to put what I felt was you know, my anger, what was wrong with things, it just uh, was a great life for me. So much so. Arnie, that you've written a book, <laughs> Lessons Learned, about all the things that you, all the insights and sort of principles, uh, as well as the stories, some of the highlight stories that you gathered across your 45 years of being an organiser. And, you know, to my listeners, to our listeners, I would say, go get the book, right? It's a great book. There's heaps and heaps of extraordinary stories in it. And I'm just going to pick up on a couple, right? A couple of things sure. that we can we can talk about. Yeah, the first thing that struck me was, you know, how you talk in several stories about in the lead up to when the major achievement was gained, when the victory was gained, that the opposition organised your people, that the, the opposition did something that brought people together in a way in which possibly the organisation itself might not have been able to. And so... That's not always how good strategic planning is conceived in many progressive movements. People think of writing a strategy that is is self-proclaimed rather than one that is, you know, in tension with oppositions or dialectical, if you want to get into a, mm -hmm. a fancy word. Tell us, you know, when you think about this idea of the importance and the role of the opposition in strategy and their actions and how that can actually galvanise your people, tell us about how that how a community organizer thinks about strategy, knowing that that is something that can happen. Well, it, uh, say the other side does a lot of the organizing for you um, because it's in their reaction to what you are doing that they expose themselves or they say things which lead you to, you know, an insight into an issue you, you do an action, you do, we call it an action instead of a demonstration because a demonstration is just what, you know, it's, you're demonstrating. Many of you have small children. They, they demonstrate a lot. <laughs> we had four children. We had a lot of demonstrations in our house. An action is aimed for a specific purpose, which is to get a specific reaction if you're able to get that. But that's what you're planning for. I can say to a group of people, in the community, you know, uh, corporate America is doing this or that, and they'll, you know, shake their head. Yeah, right. Sure. You know, what's new? Something like that. But if they sit down with the chief executive, if I can get them into a meeting with the chief, you know, or the organization get us into a meeting with the chief executive officer of a, of a corporation that is either discriminating against people of color or is refusing to pay a decent wage, if you can get that person to react uh, in a way that exposes himself, uh, usually to him as a CEO, but he exposes himself, uh, then it's real to people. You know, it's they've seen it in real time. And it isn't some, you know, nebulous corporate leader. This is, you know, Mr. Jones face to face with the leadership of your organization and Hopefully you've gotten him to say certain things which open up for people what, what really is going on. And they can, they can, you, 
it's hard to focus on a corporation. Uh, you can only focus on a person. You know, if you, when you generally say corporations do this or that, yeah, but, but who's making that decision? And how do people get to understand, you know, how the, you might be able to create some change? So you plan to try, you, you research as much as you can about the person that you're meeting with and, and about the company. If it's not a politician, let's say it's, we're talking about a corporation and you work as hard as you can, you know, in the planning to figure out where this person might react what you do or what you say might bring a reaction. Not, I mean, like, you know, cussing at him, you know, you rich son of, you know, not that kind of reaction, uh, but a reaction that reveals something or puts him on the spot in a way that he feels he has to either lie to you and then you can catch him in the lie or, you know, he just tries to cover up or, you know, or he responds well. Mm. Have you got a favorite uh, reaction? Oh, gosh. Well, I write in the book in the effort around uh, trying to get decent wages in San Antonio, Texas, which is a big city in Texas, about the ninth biggest city in the country. It's a majority Mexican-American, you know, the majority of the poor. And the corporate community there since the 1930s, we found out, had band together to not let any good paying factories in and he, uh, they didn't want unions. So it was all low wage companies that were there. And when we found this out in a report, there was a report and, and uh, we were able to find out somebody came to us and told us about this report. We'd never heard of it where it was laid out. The strategy was in print that uh, we didn't want to bring in any, you know, we weren't going to recruit they weren't going to recruit any uh, companies that paid well so they could keep the wages low in the city. And after a lot of tense actions, we got the head of a very large insurance company, USAA, and three other corporate leaders to sit down with four leaders and myself. And we, you know, we had to get a reaction out of the, the head guy who was military and, you know, very officious and, and non-responsive to react to what we had. And uh, we, we went at him in a way in which he, he finally, you know, reacted. And he called us a bunch of communists and all kinds of foolish stuff. And uh, it became evident that, that he was just, you know, just saying whatever, you know, stereotype he thought he had. But he was saying this to uh, one of the leaders was a priest. And uh, two others of the people on his team were Catholic. And uh, the priest objected to be calling, you know, to be called uh, a communist. And quoted some things from the Bible. I don't remember by the Isaiah, Jeremiah, something. Uh, as to why he was a priest and what he was doing and where were they in their belief system and what was wrong with them, Catholic or not Catholic. And it just kind of stunned General McDermott. He was, he'd never been spoken to a priest like that. And he tried to defend himself. And then, you know, then we knew we kind of, you know, we kind of had him. 
So, so much intentionality in the negotiation with those who have power. And part of this, part of this idea of planning for the reaction is planning for changing the dynamic of power face-to-face. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's a, the, probably the most distinctive and powerful part of, one of the distinctive and powerful parts of organising is its focus on negotiation rather than de- just demonstration, like the intentionality right. of changing people's minds through through the presentation of power, but then the negotiation of interest. Right. So one of the other very interesting things that you've done, Arnie, very interesting life, but I think that I'm interested in is that you w- explicitly sought to translate organising to other contexts and particularly to the context of a political party. Now, I can only imagine that at the time for some this would have been heresy. You know, the Industrial mm-hmm. Areas Foundation is a nonpartisan organisation and this was an act of not being partisan, This, this of ex- right. sorry, being explicitly partisan. And you worked for several years inside the United, the Labor Party of the United Kingdom. Tell us a little about what did you learn? Was it transferable or how much was and how much wasn't transferable to that context? And, and any insights you have about that? Yeah. Well, because we are industrialists, nonpartisan, I had to, uh, and I was a co-executive director, I had to step down from that so we wouldn't get in tax problems, uh, you know, with uh, the United States government. I, I, I originally started going over there. It was just to do, uh, it was uh, Ed Miliband was then the uh, leader of the Labor Party. And it was just to do a uh, sort of, a, they call it a root and branch. I don't know, what you know, just move around in a certain area and give him uh, what uh, I thought I saw. And it was a 10-week trip. And there was a couple of people who I knew that asked me to do this. And I met with him and he, he, he wanted me to do it. You know, we got on. Okay. So I did it. And, uh, I laid out to him what I, what I saw taking into account that who can understand a country in 10, you know, 10 weeks. I told him, I, you know, I'm no expert here, but there were a few things that were, it seemed to me to be evident and some of it he would already know the most boring time and the worst times I had in that trip, which was a great trip was going to a labor party meeting. <laughs> That's a universal. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> they were boring. They were like, you know, a bunch of older people sitting around or sometimes, you know, good people, but some, some all were good people, but you know, there's some, you know, progressives, and they were going to, you know, change the country, you know, to, in, a, in a massive way. And, you know, and this is what we needed to do. And it was fine, except it wasn't rooted in any reality, you know. And so I told them, you know, for one, you know, the leadership is uh, at that time, you know, was in the local communities were, were old. Two, the younger people were you know, good people and, and wanted to do good things, but they were, they were out to change, you know, the entire country. And, you know, they, they weren't the party in power. So, and they wanted to put together some demonstrations and things. And just, I just listened. Cause I was just, you know, trying to figure out and then write back what was going on. I, I realized that the staff and many, you know, staff 
didn't know much about organizing. Uh, organizing was door knocking to them for the most part. Uh, not, not everyone, but, uh, but mostly it was door knocking. And because every five year cycle uh, there in the UK, uh, you know, for an election, a major a national election, there were four elections within that five year cycle. It was a local election, countywide election, you know, all you know, all kinds of elections. And in each election, there was door knocking, and the organizers, people who were called organizers, had the title, were basically door knockers, and people, and 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 they were people who tried to recruit other people to door knock. And at that time, I think it's changed some. Most of the door knockers, which were maybe six or seven people, were fairly elderly people. I mean, they're well enough to walk up and down the street, but, and I listened in on the door knocking and I, you know, realized that they were just selling the labor party. You know, they were trying to find out on a scale of one, two, three, four, five, where are they on the party? You know, one being very strong for the party being five, they, they're not interested at all. And so they were, they were trying to get down the street real fast. And so these conversations were brief 30 to 60 second, I'll call them a conversation. They were 30 seconds where the person was trying to see if the person was a one, two, three, four, or five. So I, I, I realized there wasn't any real organizing going on. The party was old. It wasn't very creative. It was doing everything it had done the same way for the last gosh knows how many years. And people were frustrated and, uh, you know, that was basically what I was saying to him. And he said to me, well, you know, that, it's, that's, you know, probably the way it is. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, he said, I'm sure, but, you know, what would you do about it? What's, what, you know, I said, well, it's only 10 weeks. And I'll, you know, it's a, it's a whole country. I, I, you know, in a, you know, a, a countrywide, uh, an entire country, you know, labor party, not just local, you know, nationally. But I said, you know, Maybe you could you could listen, you know, a little bit. These door knocking sessions are not listening to people and trying to drag people into these monthly labor party meetings is like death. You know, I can hardly stand sitting sitting through. Them. And so it seems to me that, you know, you make your decisions from the top to the bottom because there aren't that many people involved. There's probably 40, 50 people in the national party that make the decisions. Instead of from the bottom up, you assume you know what people want and how they are, but you don't really know that. And so he said, well, that's, you know, it's a tough, you know, that's probably right. But it's a tough analysis. And then he asked me if I would do training there. And so that's when I stepped down from the IIF and I thought, well, let me try this. I never worked with a political party. I never had the head of a party tell me, why don't we try this? You know. So I did a lot of training on organizing basic things, how to do an individual meeting, you know, how to run a small meeting so that it's everybody gets in and it's interesting how to take a problem and break it down into an issue. That is, if, you know, take something that people say, you know, it, it's very large and try to break it down into something they can do about it. Uh, just some ba basic, as we talked about before, universals. And the reactions I was getting were great. And I, I really started enjoying this. Um, I was in another place, another culture, but I, I, 
people once this was going on, it just seemed you know uh, people were engaged and hungry for it. So then uh, Ed Miliband asked me to stay on. You know, what the year was at, he asked me to stay on again. But would I? Uh, you know, all this was good, but how, how would I apply it to an election? You know, because we're not a training institute; we're a political party. And so I took an area where uh, uh, Lancashire County, which is the largest uh, independent county for for election purposes, and it was a county election, and there are eighty six seats. It had always been Labour. It was in the north of the country, but Cameron, David Cameron, won it. When he won, the whole county council changed from Labour to Tory. Uh, they went from Labour went from controlling uh, forty-eight seats down to seventeen. I mean, they took a beating. And I picked this area because the regional director, a woman named Anna Hutchinson, was just great. You know, uh, willing to try anything. You know, she said, "If we're down to seventeen, what what do we have to lose?" You know, in a way. And her husband was the quote organizer, and uh, he. But he he was good. He was open. And he knew a lot of people in, in, in the communities. And we got together a team of 10 people and trained them on basic individual meetings and organizing to get them to bring six people over 10 weeks, bring six people to a meeting where we would begin a process of house meetings and getting to the issues that they cared about, not what the national government told them was important. And I had gotten permission from Ed Miliband to, for the national to stay out of it. Otherwise, it wouldn't work. You have to stop telling people what they care about instead of listening to them. And he said, okay, let's try it. It's an experiment. You know, it's in one place. Uh, how, you know, I remember saying something like, how much worse could we do than, you know, being down to 17 seats out of 86 seats? So we trained the people, uh, the 10, and the uh, Sure enough, when we when we came together for the meeting, there were I remember these numbers because there were 103 people there. Not it should have been six, 60, uh, 10 people doing six meetings, or and you wouldn't expect all of them to come. And there was energy in the room, and they had been recruited by 10 people that we leaders that you know I had worked with and trained on how to do individual meetings and so forth. And the meeting was great. We had uh, 10, we broke the meeting down into 10 smaller meetings, 10 people around a table who never had met with each other or talked with each other. Some were not even part of the party. And we came up with an agenda that we whittled down to five things because over there they would have an agenda that they wanted. It, it, I'm serious. It, it could be 55 different things. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, and not ranked. I mean, they were all. So when you're talking to people, you're talking about you're giving them your, you know, your agenda. It, it, it was crazy, you know, said so five things. And then we began, you know, working on this is what we would do if we would if we won around these five things. And we had some more training sessions and then we, uh, you know, we eventually wound up. This was over about an eight month period of time. We wound up with. Uh, 400 people door knocking during the week on an average and 200, uh, excuse me, 200 during the week and 400 on the weekends. 
and the energy was great. And we won back the council. Wow. And uh, I thought, you know, this is fantastic. You know, uh, we went from uh, 17 seats to 39 seats. And that meant we just had to put a coalition together, form, get four more other people, which we did on the council. And it was run by labor. Uh, Jenny was the leader of it. It was great. And Ed was excited and everybody was excited. And when it came time for the, unfortunately, when it came time for the general election, they had a person, two people who were going to run the national campaign who just didn't believe in this process and didn't think, you know, it could work across the whole country. And I agreed, you know, I mean, you couldn't do this within a year's time, but could, could I, would they allow me to take 10 marginal seats and work with them? And let's see what, what, what happens. And then you, you could compare it as to what happened, you know, in the rest of the country. And you weren't expecting to win these seats anyway. So why not try it? And because of a lot of politics and party politics and all of that, Ed, Ed never, you know, agreed to it as the people he brought in to run the national campaign didn't want that. Even if it was just 10 seats out of, you know, mm. I forget how many seats there are, you know, hundreds. Did that experience, I mean, I look at that and go, do you think that that's always going to happen with political parties, that there's always going to be that limit or roof? Or do you think that in under different circumstances, different leadership, different whatever, that it could have been, that actually that could have been different? Well, it could have been different, but I, I don't know if national, you know, political parties, I mean, I got to know the inside of it. And I'm saying that Labour Party is like every other party. So I, I'm just speaking from that experience and from some knowledge of the Democratic Party, not that I ever worked for them, but I know people, you know, in the Democratic Party in the United States, they, they have a certain way of doing things. They are invested in that way of doing it. And it's very hard to break through. You know, in the Democratic Party now, there isn't much work that goes on in between elections. And then they raise a huge amount of money and bombard people with, you know, uh, they don't talk to them door to door anymore. I mean, they, they bombard them with, you know, through the Internet and all kinds of messaging and lots of money in advertising. And, you know, I don't I don't think they really sit and talk with people. So and it's hard to change the dynamic, you know, because there are, there are people who have power in those parties and have vested interests in doing things the way they feel it needs to be done and to get themselves into positions. And it's very hard to break through that. I mean, the Labour Party, you know, I just couldn't get it to agree to just let me take 10 seats, which you're probably going to lose anyway. But let me see what we can do. I mean, we have this experience in Lancashire, which is interesting, at least. And he kept promising, you know, that uh, this is going to happen. And then someone from the Labour Party uh, leaked to the conservatives and to the Murdoch papers that I was an illegal immigrant. Wow. Which I had been working there for two years. I wasn't an illegal immigrant. And it came up on the all front pages of all the Murdoch papers. Ed's guru is an illegal immigrant. In pictures of me and him, you know, shaking hands or something like that. And I, you know, I, I wasn't. Uh, I mean, I had all the right papers. Uh, but that 
you know, immigration was, was a big issue and illegal immigrants. And it ran for two, three days, you know, in, in, in page two, page three. You know, Ed kept saying to me, well, you know, it's not true. So our, you know, our, you know, our lawyers will, will clear this up. And he never really pushed it all the way because there was so much heat around it, you know, for about a month. And then it just, you know, sort of disappeared. But I was out of the country. In every Very action, fun. there's a reaction. And sometimes That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's not you got always it. what we hope. You got it. That's, that's it. You got it. <laughs> that's oh, absolutely God. right. Good. Well. So I don't know what you can do in political parties. You know, I don't know. You know. I don't know. Yeah, I reckon it's an interesting question mark, a provocation to be raised now, because what you're describing in the UK Labour Party, I don't doubt for anyone who's familiar with the Australian Labour Party would be going, oh, yes, I can imagine some of those difficulties that are here. And I imagine it could be better if there was more of this kind of organising culture in it. But whether it's possible to make that change here in Canada and in the US, it'll be interesting to see what happens. But I just want to say... Thank you for this amazing conversation. For our listeners who are interested in what we've discussed here, you should read Lessons Learned. It's got these stories writ large um, with lots of detail and also explanation around some of these organising, these fascinating organising concepts mixed into those stories, which is not often done. People can tell good stories, but they don't necessarily have useful principles, applicable principles about what you can take away. So, Arnie, thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you. I enjoyed it, Amanda. (laughs) So did did I. (laughs) What a blessing. Thank you. Be well. Thanks. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to the podcast to catch all our episodes. And don't forget the back catalogue filled with stories and chats with wonderful people. Changemakers is produced by Xander Shivani. Our audio producer is Jules Bookerer. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast. And check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories. We also run a fabulous Facebook chat group, Changemaker Chats, on Facebook. Search it up, my friends, where you can meet and exchange ideas with other listeners. And don't forget to take a look at our organising school if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.